And we are live. Thank you. So today, guys, we would like to introduce the prehistory guys, who are a couple of my heroes. This is Rufus <laughs> Hoskin and Michael Bott, who are the circumference of the prehistory guys. I don't know if any of you have actually watched some of the videos that I've been sharing. I hope so, because they are really spectacular. And some of them are really groundbreaking. So, Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, men, countrymen of mine. Yes. <laughs> so, Rupert, you're in France. Yes. And you're in, you're not far from um, my favourite place. You're not far from Avebury, are you? Well, a bit north of that. I'm near Stratford upon Avon, uh, okay. Warwickshire. Yeah. Okay, right nice. Middle. But not far. Nice. I could be there in an hour. That's, that's yeah, close. To... Closer than me. <laughs> I could be yeah. there today. <laughs> yeah. As the crow flies, I'm just about 50 miles north of Spain. So, uh, oh, you're yeah. right down there. You're in the Pyrenees. Right down near the mountains. Yeah, it's lovely. Is it the Pyrenees? Yes. Near Toulouse? Uh, I'm two hours south of Toulouse. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Do they it's have a... electricity down there? <laughs> From time Sometimes. to time. Sometimes. We're running everything on you. Keep our fingers crossed that we keep electricity throughout the broadcast. <laughs> so, what got you to? How did you two meet? Uh, you answer that, Rupert. <laughs> okay. Uh, we met, um, I'd not long come back from one of my expeditions to Colombia, actually, northern Colombia. And uh, I wanted to make a film, uh, a completely different film. I just wanted to make a film. I knew about Mike's work as a filmmaker and thought he's the very man for me. And uh, so... We met, it would have been 1999, probably. Yeah, 1999, uh, 2000, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, we decided that, um, you know, the idea of the film that I wanted to make at the time was, uh, was pretty ambitious for two people to uh, set out on. We decided that we'd do something else that we both knew about and see how we worked together. And that was standing with stones. Wow! Um, and uh, uh, the thing is that we just had such a blast working together, and uh, here we are. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, that when you when you're working in a couple of people like this, it's like to have that kind of relationship is really important, and it shows. It comes across in every single thing you do, and it makes it it makes it you're going to watch more. You want to watch more. That's kind of you. Yeah, we, we are yeah, very, you, very lucky that yeah. we, um, that, that we, <laughs> sorry, Mike, I hope this comes out right, but we <laughs> kind of fill in each other's blanks. You know, we both yeah. bring something else to the table. And, uh, and so we are greater than the sum of our parts. You know, we're just, we're very lucky that we just seem to work seamlessly together and have a great time. You know, we're, we're such good mates. And, uh, you know, but we've never had an argument in 20, 20 years. You know, uh, it's one of those situations where if we ever disagree about how something should be done in a film or what have you, then it's never that kind of disagreement. We just we both have our opinions that we that we discuss, and it's always clear which one is the better idea. So. You know, it's and you're both you're both grown ups, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, most of the time. Try. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what growing up feels like, really. Well, you know, no, I don't know. What do you want to do when you grow thing up? Is that apart, apart from you know the the meshing of skills, um, uh, is um, that we are of a, a kind of a, a like mind. We have a similar philosophy. Mm. I think that's the you know simplest word. To the use. Biggest thing. Uh, philosophy yeah, we as, as to our mm. approach uh, and uh, what we want to people to get out of what we do. So yeah, um, yeah we're very lucky, very blessed in that respect. So. Um, at that, let's jump in. And the one that everybody kind of knows is Stonehenge. And uh, I've been there many times as a kid and laid on the stone. I mean, before they cordoned it off and charged you to go and look at some old stones. Um, it's crazy. Um, but what got me more was actually Avebury. Avebury yeah. to me was like dynamite. Yeah. So yesterday, re-watching for the fourth time, um, Standing with Stones, <laughs> I'm once again sort of transformed there as if I'm 12 years old on a school trip mm. and in awe. I, I, I don't suppose anybody can ever go there unless you live there, of course. I don't suppose you can go there and not be in awe. It doesn't matter if you go every day. It's fascinating. So in the center of that, is that it was Avebury, right, that you had the, the roads of wood and you didn't know if it was high or low or was that the other one up north in Lancashire? Oh again. no, the, uh, the 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 pillars in the middle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. oh, that's Stanton Drew. Okay, I got the middle. Which is in Somerset. Yeah. Right, but there was a question afterwards that that could have been done in the middle of Avebury as well, or not? Um, <coughs> there haven't been any uh, timber posts to that same degree found uh, at Avebury. So, do they know what what Avebury was there for? No. Well, no, but that's the thing. No, nobody knows what any of these places were for. You know, we we have our theories, um, but uh, but no. I mean, it's it's all actually unknown. You know, when anybody says anything with any degree of certainty, like it was a temple, the truth is they have got absolutely no idea. Right. Um, you know. Right. Uh, the the other place, the the best known other place with. Um, uh, with timber posts is uh, is Durrington walls um, but they've actually found you know over the last few years with uh, geophys there's increasing numbers of, of sites with timber posts so interesting yeah, yeah. and it's something that uh, you know from the mo the get-go almost the first week time we started working t together uh, and our focus was, you know, very much on the megalithic um, and the enigma of stone circles th themselves. And uh, I, it struck me early on that, you know, where's all the timber? Where's all the wood? We, we, if somebody could tell us if we could have evidence of, you know, the timber structures surrounding these things, we'd be a lot further along the road to solving the problem. We'd be able to make sense of what people were trying to do. Uh, a stone circle on its own doesn't make any sense. No. We only have stone circles because that's what survived. And uh, it's only recently that people have started looking for the, you know, the post holes that maybe give away to other structures uh, around uh, these centers of activity, which we, as human beings, we can, we can relate to. Oh, that makes sense. That's right. make, that, that's, a, that's a gateway into there, or, or that's a you know that, that's a timber house or a hut, or um, you know that's the ticket barrier, or that's the you know. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Amazing. Which, of course, they found around Stonehenge now, haven't they? All of these, the stone, the, the wooden circle they found on the outskirts of there as well, haven't they? Mm, uh, really? I thought they had. No, I don't think so. There are some timber posts at the uh, north east uh, entrance. Uh, there's a complex of timber posts at the north east entrance. Um, there's a complicated array of timber posts that were found pretty near the center, you know, sort of in, in, in the middle. Um, but, uh, oh, I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking about the Mesolithic um, uh, four timber posts that were found in, underneath the car park. Uh-huh, that must be it. Yeah, which has nothing to do with the, the monument uh, as it is. That no, it, a few it, thousand it, years it, before. It, it's, it's quite possible that it's just... Uh, that, that's where somebody decided to uh, put their first house and, <laughs> you know, and everything else just built up from there over a couple of thousand years. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, but the full well, archaeology hasn't been done on, on those posts. I mean, they've just, I think they just got revealed because that's where they took the, the, the when they stripped back the car park. Um, so oh, they only got the four posts. They could extend either way for any, any distance, uh, interestingly. Mm. Um, I, I would like to figure out, see if there's any relationship between the arrangement of those posts, possibly, and the arrangements at Warren Fields, which is way up north. But that's yeah. been, I haven't even thought about that. Yeah, that's an yeah. interesting that idea. Warren, say, say about Warren Fields, because that's a goodie. Well, Warren Fields up north, it, it's, a, it's a Mesolithic site that... Uh, that it's actually a, a calendar, uh, so it's oh, it's wow. laid out. Uh, yeah, it's a complex arrangement, and uh, it was Vince Gaffney, uh, a brilliant archaeologist who uh, who worked on that some years ago, and establishing that this bizarre arrangement of posts. Obviously, it's just now you just have the evidence the, that the posts yeah. were there. Um, uh, but, uh, but, you know, big posts as well. So you would have had these observational aspects of the gaps between them uh, that function very accurately as a calendar. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you think that they were doing that back in the Mesolithic, yeah. so, uh, you know, 8,000 years ago, 9,000 yeah. years ago. That's crazy. Yeah. And up north, who'd have thunk it? Yeah, can you remember exactly where it is? But I can't remember exactly where uh, Warren Fields uh, lies. Um, is it Northumberland somewhere? Is it, it's um, right up there. It's you know. Yeah. Kind of... I might have written something about that. Now. But you're <laughs> absolutely right you know, about the significance of that. That is before you're. That is, we're st still supposed to be in your hunter-gatherer stage, and yet yeah. here we have uh, you know a, a conscious effort to mm. uh, uh, relate to something in the cosmos, which uh, speaks to something a bit more settled than we're led to believe. Yeah. Nevertheless, you know this is before uh, our farmers, our Neolithic farmers, arrive. So. Yeah. Yeah. Decipher yeah. that one. It's a really incongruous thing, you know, that we, we have all these things where it, when you, if you look on either um, uh, across the, uh, through throughout Europe today or going off into, you know, Egypt and over into the Middle East, we know that these, uh, you know, for example, that, you know, the Bronze Age uh, over on the continent was a good 500 years before uh, we had it in Britain. And that applies to every aspect of history that you care to look at. 
that over uh, in Europe and then going across to the East, it was happening a lot longer ago than it was in Britain. And yet you have these sites like Warren Fields where you have a complex uh, observatory calendar, if you like, uh, set up there, which shows that they were extremely sophisticated people. And yet there is nothing to show uh, for you know how they were living or anything else yeah, at the time. Right. It, it's yeah. you know it's such an incongruous set of circumstances. That's crazy. Yeah. That's anyway, sorry, we've whisked you away from Stonehenge up north to something. <laughs> that's, I mean, you know, but I love before, that. Yeah. I really love that. <laughs> everything's connected in a way, yeah. isn't it? So the Stonehenge thing, um, the blue stone from Wales. It's like, yeah. and there's various people like to say, well, they rolled it on trees, right? Nobody knows. What? How did they move them? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> and why? I mean, what the hell? Well, uh, there's there's various um, various aspects there. As for the why, yeah. Um, I think probably the most significant thing for us really is that it, clearly the blue stones at Stonehenge did come from Wales. And it seems quite likely that if you had a coming together of cultures, that there would be a reason to, you know, if, if supposing there were, whatever, 10 bluestone circles in Wales, and these different groups of people actually took parts of their uh, uh, site to Stonehenge, this coming together of people, because it, it does seem to be, if you look in the archaeological record, it does seem to be a very tangible thing with axes in particular, that uh, it was a thing to take a piece of a place and take it to another place. That makes sense. So you've got axes from, say, you know, there's the axe factory in the Lake District in England, and axes from there have been found all over Britain and even over on the continent. You know, this was a prized stone, um, for example. Um, as and to and that, of course, the, the Italian jadeite being found in all over the place, including in Scotland, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. the Italian Alps, wow. yeah. Yeah. There, there was a lot more of that going on than people realised, wasn't there? So it's but like really finding, out that, finding out that why is kind of wraps things up a bit more, doesn't it? I mean, taking well, something from one sacred place to another makes <laughs> to me. Yes, I mean, there are two uh, c competing uh, arguments about that you know, uh, related to uh, two personalities of uh, prehistoric archaeology, you know, uh, you know well, concerning yeah. Stonehenge, one Mike Parker Pierce and the other being uh, uh, Tim Darville. Um, if I was, if you had your, my hand up my back and uh, asked me, <laughs> you know, which one do you go with, I, I prefer Tim's argument uh, mm. because of the deep, deep, um, uh, uh, history, heritage uh, there is, and um, um, what's the other word beginning with H? Uh, <laughs> of <laughs> of the, the blue of the blue stones at the, in the Presalia Hills and uh, around about those uh, springs on the hillsides there, right? And the the cup and ring markings and those kinds of things. There's such a tradition of those being associated with healing. Mm. Uh, that uh, I go with Tim's thing of them being brought to Stonehenge 
uh, as a as a to make it a, a center of healing. If you're going to go, you know, with an, yeah. an elaborate um, sort of quite a deep and uh, thought through um, uh, idea. Um, Mike Parker Pearson's uh, more concerned with the living and the dead, is he not, Rupert? Maybe have you, uh, you've yeah, got he, more of a handle on his take than I have. Well, he, Mike Parker Pearson, uh, he did a lot of work with, um, oh, good grief, who was his Oh, from partner? Madagascar. Pardon? The guy from Madagascar. The yes. Other, the Madagascar yeah, I can't remember his name. That's shameful of me. I'm terrible with yeah. names. Um, but it's still a part of the culture in Madagascar that uh, that wood is something that is about the living and stone is something that's about the dead. So um, Mike Park Pearson uh, saw that very much as a correlation with what he was observing in British archaeology. And so he favours the idea that, uh, that uh, Stonehenge is a... A massive cemetery, if you like. It is a place of the dead, um, and uh, maybe, but um, nothing's uh, really popped up about that, though, has it? No, I, it, you know, but it's one of those things that it's all very well having theories, but mm. but if if they're essentially unprovable, yeah. then it is just an idea. Um, yeah, you know, so you, it, it's it, it's you know, it's and then what? You know, you can't do anything with it, right? Really. Right. Um, so I. Yeah, um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not about to do the man down. I mean, he's a phenomenal archaeologist. He just has his way of doing things. Um, but uh, I'm going to go back to you, you saying about how they moved the stones because I oh, think yes, this yes, is a really important thing. That uh, people have all sorts of uh, fairly outlandish ideas about how. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a phenomenal piece of research done uh, a couple of years ago that this was actually noticed in uh, in Romania to start with and Croatia that um, some archaeologists noted that uh, in the excavations that they dug up cattle bones and by cattle I'm not talking about just domesticated cows I'm talking about aurochs as well so these massive beasts ancestors of cattle these huge things and, uh, and these guys noticed that the, the foot bones of the aurochs showed all the signs of the way bone growth goes when you put something under consistent strain. And so they started correlating this with other sites and they found that everywhere that they were digging up cattle bones, that there was evidence that these animals had been used for traction, for pulling. Um, from the bone growth. Now, the thing is that this is well before farming. We're talking about 7,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago. And uh, and so, it, you know, what were they doing? They're not plowing, they're pulling. Yeah. Yeah. So they're either pulling massive timbers around for, because uh, they must have been heavy because it's uh, they're under strain yeah. uh, yeah. to have that kind of bone growth. So they're either pulling massive timbers or they're pulling stones. Um, all right, they might have been pulling other things that we don't know about, but, but that would be logical. So the, the idea of men dragging stones across the landscape is kind of silly. You know, if exactly. you think that, well, they could have, uh, you know, they could have harnessed up 
a team of however many uh, cattle, you know, that's going to make life an awful lot easier, isn't it? Yeah, well, and we've laid down the challenge, haven't we, Rupert, to uh, uh, you know archaeology students in every university up and down the land to go back to the uh, bovine uh, heel bones found yeah. anywhere and look for these signs of strain, you know, that would yeah, that uh, makes so uh, much sense. Yeah, well, it's it's the crazy thing, isn't it? You know that that um, because I, I, you know everything comes down to budget, really, which is why we think it should be something that is completely dumped on students go look because you know yeah. you could you could get all the students around the world in fact involved in a groundbreaking piece of knowledge if you could actually prove that cattle throughout the world had been used for pulling heavy weights long before farming was uh, a thing then you know that's something would, to work. well if they would allow it to be it would change history books again yeah, <laughs> that's a f I never even thought about the aurochs. No, they wouldn't. Why no, would you? Yeah. you know? amazing, Neither did we it? until we saw the research. You know. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. That's incredible. I'm and, so uh, impressed that there's an archaeologist who actually recognised that, who actually saw a bone and thought, "Wait a minute!" You know? <laughs> so amazing. Is just I don't know, but to have to have Stonehenge as a healing centre rather than chopping people up and cutting them whatever out you know on the stone slab that they always like to think is some sort of a sacrifice stone well that's well, that, yes uh, sorry i was i was going to say to be fair um stonehenge still you know pre the erection of the the, the great monument that we see you know, um was definitely a huge cemetery it's one of the most uh, intense concentrations of, of burials in the whole of the uh, uk as far amazing as, yeah See, I didn't know that. Yeah. What, whereabouts were the bones found, or have they been found? Oh, in the trenches, in some of the uh, uh, Aubrey holes, and uh, you know, in um, pits within the uh, ditch and bank circle. Mm. Oh wow! Mm. And also, if if you uh, if you look in the landscape around and about, so uh, so you've got Stonehenge as a hub, if you like. But you've got the Barrow cemeteries that extend, uh, you know, a couple of miles in each direction, really. Yeah. Yes, um, and of course you've got such a mixture because the, the Barrow cemeteries are more Bronze Agey. That's yeah. after the, you know, the uh, the main monument went yeah. up for the most part. But of course you've got Long Barrows to the north, you know, each end of the uh, the, the yeah. cursus, etc. So. Uh, yeah. a, it's like a it's a hive that whole area around Wiltshire and. Yes, but, it, but but we've got to be really, really, really careful to separate things out chronolo from a chronological point of view. We see it all now compressed together in the landscape at the same time, so we naturally associate it, everything, with everything else that's in the landscape there. Right. All we can tell is that people have been active there for, uh, you know, a, a long, long time. Yeah. Because uh, we've got, what, uh, uh, well... At least a thousand years more, two thousand years of activity, you know, represented yeah. in the in the landscape. There, it doesn't, and uh, we tend to, you know, create stories out of what we see in front of us, and it's not necessarily the case that these things are related to each other. It just it says like that it, people yeah. were doing stuff in this landscape and mm. it, 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 the, the cultural may, culture may have changed entirely over that time. In fact, indeed it did. 
Yeah. Um, you know, from uh, 2005 uh, uh, over into the, the Bronze Age, that's when we've got, uh, you know, the Beaker um, people uh, coming over and uh, things changing very much so. Uh, as exemplified in the change to round barrows with, uh, you know, single interments um, with, with, with grave goods as opposed to, you know, multiple interments. I mean, it's a huge cultural change in terms of you know, your relationship, what you think of the cosmos and your relationship to life and death when you stop putting, um, you know, large numbers of people into the same mortuary space at the same time without grave yeah. goods to putting single people in in barrows with with grave goods yeah it's why they still look like lumps in the there. ground but the the, the, the change is uh, is massive yeah well one of the big things i think it was it was one of the step is part of the one that you did up in dartmoor and there's so much going up on on up on dartmoor but rupert said at one point this was covered in forests so we don't know if these lines of stones were going into forested areas mm. or like it is now, which is just a large moor. Mm. You, know, you don't know what it was going into. So it changes yeah. everything, doesn't it? It really does. And, it, you know, the, the thing is that it, it makes sense. You know, if you think of it in terms of dense forest, it does make sense that if you have a row of stones going through dense forest, it is giving you a direction. You know, you're, you're not going to get lost. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but equally, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that we don't know. Mm. Um, you know, it, you've got stone rows that are 50 yards long and stone rows, there's a stone row on the Urm Plains that's, oh do you know what, I forget how long it is, but it's a couple of miles or something at least, might be more yeah, than that. Too, yeah, I think it's um, more than that though. The it might be four miles, but I'm trying head. to remember. I think it's oh, really? Okay. Well, hey, the Urban Plains, I think, is the longest stone row known. Yes. Um, wow. Mind uh, you, the stones are really spaced out. Of, uh, yeah. The south side of Dartmoor. Uh, sorry, Mike, which side? Uh, yes, the stones are very spaced out. Yes. They're, they're not, yeah. <laughs> you, have to, you, have to, you arrive at one stone, you have to look for the next. It's not, oh, like, wow. uh, not like Merivale, you know, where that illustrates the point, though, that they didn't all serve the same function. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you've got a whole row of stones where you've literally got one stone next to the rest, you know, it is literally a row of stones as opposed to a line of spaced out stones, you know, that it's... You know, it, so if you've got a, a line of stones that stretches for miles across the moor, or maybe it was through miles of dense forest at the time, you know, <laughs> but as opposed to a whole row of stones where you can stand at one end and, you know, you can see the other end of the road just over there. Well, clearly they're not, they're not doing the same job. Right. So what were they doing? And, well... Um, is the same as the the four circles together, the stone circles that go before those things. Was that the is that the only one that there's like four circles within circles within circles kind of thing? Oh, you mean at Yellowmead? Oh, okay. It's a different no, place yeah, yeah. Okay, Yellowmead. Okay. Yeah, no, Yellowmead. Now that's a, that's another interesting thing because uh, well, when that you speaks to our naivety at this time, we were it really does. Stone, it yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and up ignorant. Um, <laughs> that um, well. 
you look at yellow mead uh for viewers who don't know yellow mead is uh is uh, it's on uh, uh another site on dartmoor and it's four concentric circles stone circles stone, yeah. uh they're small stones the tallest is about it's not a meat at all um you know yeah. a bit over half a meter something like that uh, many of them are very, very small, just stubby stones in the ground. And, uh, you know, it, it, you look at it and it is utterly enigmatic. It doesn't make any sense at all. But then you go up to, uh, there's a place called Templewood up in Scotland. And there is uh, the remains of a cairn circle. So it's, this is most definitely a burial. In the middle of it, there is a kist, which is basically a stone box um, that would be the grave. And outside of that, there is this big cobbled surface, but the cobbles are retained by concentric rings of stones. Oh, wow. So what's happened on Yellowmead is that, uh, whether it's farmers over the centuries uh, or over the millennia, or just people for building materials, what have you. People have actually robbed out those stones that they could use in other places. And all that's been left is the rings of stones. Yeah. In other words, yellow mead was not a stone circle. It was a can. It was, it was a can, yeah. yeah. And a very big one at that. It and was you, a big one then. Yeah. That's massive. Yeah. So that must have been a very important burial because that, that would have been huge. I wonder who he was, or Indeed. she, or she. <laughs> uh, how old does that go back? Did you? Can you do that? It's, uh, it's about five thousand years old, roughly. So yeah, we've we'll come across this uh, interesting Dartmoor dating problem, though, because um, I, I, I think by association everything tends to get uh, dumped into the Bronze Age, but I think new developments are coming along that uh, push some of the dates, you know, for, certainly for the <coughs> circles and for the rows, uh, push the dates back, uh, mm. which I always felt a bit more comfortable with. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, much, uh, so much megalithic building going on in the Bronze Age. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's loads of stuff, and people were active on Dartmoor in the Bronze Age, obviously but we don't think they were building stone rows and stone circles in quite the same mm. way they were certainly leaving their mark they were certainly burying people the kists can be dated you know and they were right. putting kists in existing places and revering the places that were already there right um but uh, whitehorse hill uh rupert how many people know about the extraordinary <laughs> yeah. discovery on uh, whitehorse hill as a, as a, a, a burial uh, that was found of a of a young woman um, oh. with extraordinary grave goods. Um, I, I don't know why this isn't more celebrated. Uh, actually, I can't it's, remember the exact date that's been put on that burial, but uh, I'd need to look it up. But um, it's it's an extraordinarily rich burial. It's the, certainly it is it, it's of global importance. Mm. Um, oh, and the the artifacts in the grave. It was. Uh, it was a head and hoof. Is it called a head and hoof? Head and hide. Well done. Hide and yes. hoof. It, um, but hide basically, yeah. it um, it was bear skin uh, that was uh, so the whole thing was contained within a bear skin, um, which is unusual enough in itself. But there were loads of artifacts came out of that grave, and uh, it was uh, astonishing that. <laughs> 
they actually were excavating it on a Friday afternoon and it was just something that they were doing for routine. And suddenly, <laughs> pop, Stuff. this, this bead just falling out of this. Yeah. Which is something that is so rare on yeah. dark. And, uh, and, it was, and it was the end of the day on Friday and, and the weather was turning in. So they thought, well, they couldn't just leave it. No. <laughs> um, and they're out in the middle of the moor. So they actually excavated the entire thing as a block and put it on a cart and, and dragged it off the moor uh, so that it didn't get completely wrecked by the weather that was coming in. <laughs> and, uh, and then spent however long uh, working on it uh, in, the, in the lab when they got it yeah. back. But you, know, you can tell you know, we know, taking an entire kiss burial <laughs> across the moor. That's yeah. crazy. Well, I mean, people don't really, apart from, um, even some Brits wouldn't know what the moor is like, but it's the vast land of nothingness. Two, two, two things. We, we didn't, uh, for, if people are interested in Dartmoor, because it is so, so rich uh, and, uh, and such a unique landscape, uh, the interview we uh, did with um, Lee Bray, who was the head archaeologist uh, on uh, Dartmoor, we did an interview with him. If you if you look on YouTube, search for prehistory guys Lee Bray. Uh, that's a fascinating in interview, and he he speaks about the burial that we just talked about and the recent yeah. uh, developments on dating and so on and so forth. Um, good one to go for. Also, do a search on Whitehorse Hill um, mm. burial or Whitehorse Hill um, um, uh, Bronze Age. I'm sure something will come up because there were quite a few interesting images as well to come out of that. It's very evocative. Mm. That uh, it sounds fantastic. I haven't seen that at all. So, yeah, yeah. so why, Rupert? Why did you say that it was globally important? Because, um, bearing in mind its position on Dartmoor, mm. in the middle of the moor, that out of all the burials that there are on Dartmoor, and there are many. I mean, many. I and this one. It's the only one that's been found that uh, that particularly that contained a, you know the, the whole thing was wrapped in a bear skin. So clearly this person was important. Uh, the fact that the grave goods that came out of it are, uh, are it's a unique amount of grave goods for Dartmoor. Um, and uh, and so if you know if you if you take any site around the world, uh, you know when things really stand out, that you you have to uh, consider the importance of that person in that place, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know because clearly they mattered. It, it's a bit like it, you know you look at um, in Ireland, in County Sligo, there's uh, this enormous camp called Maeve's Camp. Yes, it is. I mean, when we say enormous. It's, it's insanely huge. They, they couldn't excavate it because where would you start? You know, you've got this mountain of cairn material, just boulder upon boulder upon cobble. And, you know, I, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of tons it must be. Wow. You couldn't excavate it. Uh, but the thing it's is in, that it's, it's in the, the film, biggest... Mandy. You know, you know that great mound? Uh, I do. Sligo that when I walk out, I do. Yeah. 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 The, 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 you see, the thing is that it's the biggest uh, cairn of its type known. Um, 
and so to put somebody in a tomb like that, they must have been very, very, very important. Oh yeah, it's right on the top of uh, of a hill, of a big hill. Yeah. They carried all that can material all the way up to the top. You can't call it a mountain; it's not a mountain. But um, but you know they carried all that material a long way up. That must have been a very important person. Can I just read uh, from? I've just found the White Horse Hill. White Horse is one word, by the way, in case anybody was doing a search. Uh, White Horse okay. Hill on Dartmoor. It said the grave contained the cremated remains of a young adult, probably female, which had been placed in the kist in the early Bronze Age between 1730 BC and 1600 BC. This had been wrapped in an animal pelt, analysis of which revealed had been from a brown bear fastened with a copper alloy pin. A variety of other grave goods accompanied the deceased. These included 200, 200 beads of fired clay, shale, amber and tin, which had probably originally formed a necklace. Wooden studs, uh, which may have been worn as labrets in the ears and or lips, similar to the ear stretchers worn by some people today. Wow. Fragments of textile and leather, a flint tool, a bracelet of woven cow hair and tin studs and a bus basketry container. That's <laughs> well done. Well done, that man. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that astonishing? It's I, serious. I, I don't know if you're... Just mention this in passing. It's another thing that Lee Bro mentioned when we were talking about it, and, and the finds in this kist speak to it. It's how we envision people in, in the past, whether it be Bronze Age, Neolithic, or what have you. Um, they, we, they tend to be um, uh, portrayed very plainly with... Uh, I suppose it's it's hard. To, you could accuse people of going into overreach if they dressed them up in, with you know, too many tattoos and right. colour and uh, the too many adornments. But it seems to be that that's the way things were. If these labrets in the ears and things, people were really going to town about how they, they looked and you know <laughs> and pushing the boundaries of how they looked as well. Yeah. Um, mm. So, yeah, Lee is all for uh, adding a bit of colour to the portrayal of people. That, that's a very good point. Of... Uh, you know, when you think that it's only this year that, if you bear in mind that textiles generally don't, uh, don't remain in the archaeological record, they just yeah. rot away. Right. Um, and so, you know, we've gone from imagining people wearing animal skins uh, for however long, but people still have that in their heads a lot of the time. But to sites where they have found preserved textiles, and it was just this year, earlier this year, that they found in Israel, they found some uh, some wool that had been dyed purple. And, and the thing is that this is the earliest known uh, example of, of purple dye because it's such a fugitive color anyway. Um, but also, you know, those sorts of materials don't hang around. But it's 3,000 years old. Mm. And, and so if, if you had textiles, you know, lush purple 3,000 years ago, uh, that that's what we know about, then you, know, you, you can say, well, we just found this scrap because usually it rots away. You know, how many thousand years have we been making yeah, way, way more. And I think that the whole, 
the whole thing about the adornments and everything is 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 like it is today, if not more so. Because mm, yeah. half the time they're carrying it on their person because they've got nowhere to store it, or they were more yeah. <laughs> mobile, moving all over the place. Yeah, I mean, even pushing even further, further back in time, we we feel get so many reports of of burials with uh, what seemed like uh, very odd, multitudinous collections of of uh, bits of ivory or. Uh, teeth woven in, or, you know, perforated teeth and that kind of thing. It's becoming more and more clear that an awful lot of people in deep prehistory were wearing loads of stuff, hard stuff, jangly stuff on their uh, on on their uh, clothes. Uh, so there's a kind of bringing to to life of the imagination. Uh, the the imagination. I tell you what bringing us a bit nearer to, uh, to to the present. I'm coming right back to the, the Iron Age. I was on a dig on uh, Orkney uh, a couple of years ago uh, on the uh, an Iron Age broch, and the chief archaeologist uh, there was telling us about the, uh, the... They'd found a heck of a lot of small beads, perforated beads, and they sent them away for uh, analysis, and it came back that they had this particular sort of crackulature on the surface of, of the bead. And I don't know if anybody remembers uh, a thing called clackers. They were a thing, a toy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, back in the, the 70s or what have you. And it was the same sort of crackulature. 60s, mate, 60s. 60s used to develop on, on the surface of those, you know, the, the, those balls used to yeah. crack to, go, to deliberately make this noise. So the, the thing was that the... You could imagine uh, dancing going on. These clothes covered in these these beads and, and the up and down movement of the dance and the continual cracking together of, of, of these beads yeah. created that crackleture on the on the surface. That's and that, amazing. that really sparks the imagination, doesn't it? That's amazing. Yeah. Seriously, and on Orkney. Mm. Yes, and on Orkney. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dancing great. on Orkney, who would have thought of it? I know, not, no, not at all. That's fantastic, though. Wow. Amazing. So tell me, let me let me figure out. I've, we've gone through over some of the things without even... What was that word? Paleoprotonomics? Paleoprotonomics? No. Paleo. Michael was proud of you because you said it right. Paleoprotonomics. Paleoprotonomics. Oh, okay. So, um, you, what you talking about teeth? This was the banana thing that they weren't. They didn't come from from Jamaica or somewhere. But but it's the it's the, the relatively new science of analysing uh, the remains on teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's yeah. Okay. I thought it was fun. Man, you always have the advantage of us if you've only just watched one of our <laughs> i've been keeping notes for the last few weeks so no, it's like, oh, you think, you think, <laughs> did we say that yeah um it's uh essentially it's amazing how much uh chemistry is changing archaeology now um, and the fact that you can do that, as um, you know, as, as you said, you've got this new technology where they can analyze uh, 
the, the remains on uh, you know, the residues that have been left on teeth in burials, yes. uh, you know, that they can uh, scratch it off and tell you what it was the person had been eating. Uh, you know, in the same way that they can scrape, you know, they, they find a, a broken piece of pottery and you, you can scrape the inner surface of that and, uh, and, and they can tell uh, whether it was, uh, you know, goat's milk or sheep's milk or cow's milk that had actually been contained in that pot. It's phenomenal uh, how uh, we're learning so much from this uh, new technology. But as you say, you know, when you, uh, w <laughs> when you analyze some teeth that have been found in the Middle East and, uh, and you find that they've actually been eating something that came from, you know, the Philippines or, uh, you know, or what have you. And uh, it, it tells you so much about the extent of the trade and the distance of the trade that was going on thousands of years before anybody really knew you know pe okay people have suggested it and people have thought for a long time that you know this is possible and that's possible but when you start finding the evidence to completely back that up uh you know taking it out of the realms of make-believe and into the realms of no people really were traveling huge distances uh in prehistory you know it's uh uh, you know, and I'm sure, particularly, you know, uh, 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 viewers of your channel, you know, it's very much the sort of thing that uh, uh, that they'd be interested in. You know, that clearly people travelled crazy distances at a period in time where, um, you know, the normal narrative of history is that people wouldn't have been able to. Um, you know, and we tend to ignore the uh you know the daring gung-ho spirit of humans you know uh we will do something even if it's insanely risky mm. uh, probably you know. even more back then because they didn't have the choice of or the the way of complaining is like well my bicycle's broken or my car is empty it's, <laughs> it's like you either do it or you don't yeah oh indeed yeah, yeah I, I think it's, it's a very important aspect of uh of uh, you know our prehistoric ancestors that we are obsessed now with wanting everything done yesterday. Yeah. And, uh, and so, if, you know, if you want a loft conversion, you know, one of your first questions is how long is it going to take? And if they tell you it's going to be more than three weeks, then you go and find somebody else. Um, but, but, you know, in prehistory, you've got, well, did you want to do a thing or didn't you? Because the time it took was utterly irrelevant. Um, yeah. And so, you, you know, building... A, <laughs> Building any kind of uh, monument that you know must have taken, you know, look at the pyramids. Uh, you know, the people think aliens must have done it because they Some think. Some of us still do. <laughs> well, but it's that thing of because nobody can imagine anybody being happy about something taking more than a lifetime. Um, yeah. But the reality is, to our ancestors, it didn't matter because very often people didn't reach old age anyway. You know, it, it, if you considered 40-something to be a reasonable innings, uh, you know, that obviously building anything is going to take potentially a number of lifetimes. We're just, you know, we, we have all our thoughts coming from a highly, highly privileged position. Yeah. 
it's, yeah, it's um, very true it's very true yeah. Amazing though. So let's. Um, so the other, another part of yesterday's viewing that I was doing, yeah. um, this Northwest Canada thing that was showing by by the research that was being done on, on bodies found in a specific area, how long these people had been living there as a family. The genealogy went back. So oh, goodness, far. yes. The this, this whole area was linked to this one woman. And what was it, 20 yeah. years previously? And so mm. you've got these same people living there. It's an amazing study, isn't it? The yeah. fact that that family, and, and related to they they found one or two people still there today yeah. related to someone from 9,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. it's, it is, yeah, yeah. Um, but once yeah, again, that's not traveling very far at all, is it? <laughs> not no, really. But then again, if you, if you look at where it is, it's quite a, an archipelago of, of, of islands. And so, you know, quite a few of them wouldn't have really have had a reason to, right. to go very far. You know, it's, uh, it, it, I mean, I'm talking right, aren't I? The, yeah, the, yeah, those, yeah, it was on a, yeah. Quite, quite a small island, yeah. Of, uh, uh, I mean, that was fascinating to have the same female in their background. Mm. So, so on a worldwide scope, um, Tracy, who's one of the admin with me on, on Ancient Aliens, she asked me to ask you, she's being forced to celebrate tomorrow's um, celebrations. She's been forced to go to family today. She's not happy. Okay. She's going to be here with us. Sorry, Trace, I said that out loud. Um, so she said, do you know about Mystery Hill in New Hampshire, which is said to be America's Stonehenge, and nobody really knows anything about it? Uh, no. Well, yes, no of it, certainly. But but is, that's the thing, isn't it? Nobody knows anything about it. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the thing about New Hampshire... In fact, when you look at any of the sites in the north, you know, in Connecticut and uh, uh, around there, that there are uh, there are. I'm trying to think of the best way. You can't really call them megalithic because they're not huge stones, but they're nevertheless they're structures that echo European. Uh, structures, what is now European structures, mm. um, from 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. And uh, I think, again, you know, we have this, uh, there's a stubborn view in archaeology that is changing, thanks to people like Bruce Bradley, um, that people didn't cross the Atlantic in prehistory. Um, but if you if you take it back to the end of the last ice age, when you had an ice sheet going all the way from the European landmass across to the Americas, that if you take the, the southernmost uh, extent of that ice sheet, that the shortest distance between uh, the, the European landmass and the Americas was across from northern France-ish, you know, France anyway, going straight the way across an ice sheet to New England, Connecticut. You know, it, right, it's, it's more or less, not a straight line, but that's the shortest distance. And if you think, you know, if it's humans following an ice sheet, that for them it's not, uh, you know, it's not that they're on the water, it's the same way as the Inuit today. You're, you know, you're living on the ice. 
you could travel that distance, you could be fishing, you could be catching seals, uh, and you could make your way easily across the Atlantic. And then as the ice retreated, and over however many thousands of years melted completely, the thing is that humans still knew that you could travel from here to here. And, uh, you know, we know, you know, Mike and I have said this so many times, that uh, we know that people like the Polynesians traveled thousands of miles yeah. in canoes. Yeah. So to say that humans couldn't have done it is, is clearly silly. You know, that clearly they, they very much could have done it. Um, so to see these sites on the opposite sides of the Atlantic that show echoes of building styles, you know, it, you just have to accept that, uh, that no, these very probably were culturally connected. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. Is, that is true. However, you also have to be <coughs> very careful because if you're going to build something with rudimentary materials, whether it be stone, whether it be the earth, they're by default, they're going to look pretty similar worldwide anyway, whether there's a transportation of culture or so, so it's not a dependable marker for a, a, a transportation of a, of a culture. I think the Clovis blades themselves are far, far, far more um, um, yeah, indicative. indicative of, uh, yeah. Or even or the Salutrian blades. Salut oh, sorry, Salutrian, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Blades um, it's true, but I, I think uh, I might think Forget about you. my schoolboy, um, yes, error there. <laughs> Salutrian. <laughs> But, the, the, uh, but for example, there's, um, you know, Gungiwamp, if, if that's the right pronunciation. I do, because I want to. One of the structures at, at Gungiwamp, um, if you take a plan view of it, any of the archaeological drawings of the interior, uh, that uh, you have a, a large chamber, so you've got a passage going to a large chamber, and then a tiny sort of crawl space, to go to a much smaller chamber behind the main one. And uh, that is exactly the same uh, design structure as sites in Spain. Um, haven't seen that design anywhere else. I've only seen it in Spain and in New England, uh, or Connecticut rather. So, um, uh, so you know, you, you, you have to at least accept the possibility uh, you know, archaeologists and historians have always said before that these sites in in the Americas were built by the uh, the early Christians who travelled over there. But you have to ask the question: Well, why on earth would the early Christians <laughs> ar arrive in the Americas and start using a building style that we'd stopped using thousands of years ago in Europe? It doesn't make sense, does it? it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So they were there. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. I, I think it's. Uh, I think it's pretty <laughs> obvious, really, isn't it? It's, it's silly. So um, one of your recent, because um, you've been sort of stuck doing online podcasts and stuff for the last year, haven't you? I bet yeah. you're dying to get out again, aren't you? We are. We certainly are. Just Gosh. jumping at the bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Must drive you crazy. I mean, you're you're in the middle of nowhere. I know, aren't you, um, Rupert? But Michael, I take it you're probably around people a bit more, or not? Are you in the middle of nowhere too? 
Um, no, we live in a, a, a village here. Uh, not that I get out any more than Rupert does, really, <laughs> <laughs> apart from walking the dog, you know. <laughs> Except that I did take a day out uh, a week or so ago to make a little film to include our, in our next ver um, edition of the prehistory show. Uh, I like to take my camera out and um, gather info, gather pics, gather, gather stories from, you know, just little five minute uh, cameos awesome. of places that people that. may not know about and, uh, or, or, or um, you know, just anything that has a fascinating story to tell. Sometimes I'll take the van and I'll uh, stay overnight and um, in, in the van I've got a little sort of camper thing. Uh, to catch the morning rays and do some filming and come back and make a story around it. Wonderful. Uh, I really yeah. love those things that you do. But I, yeah. you know, saying that, I have enjoyed your little podcast as well. It's like these snippets of things like that have encouraged me to go and look stuff up. I've heard in passing or read in passing about the, the, the dig that was going on and wherever it was in Spain and that they dug up a dagger. And then I saw your podcast about the dagger and I had to go and look about it more because... Oh, the crystal dagger, yes. How the hell did they do that? What, well, the crystal well, dagger? Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many did they make? Because they kept breaking whilst they were doing it. Uh, well, <laughs> we it takes a great was, skill as yeah. a napper. Uh, you know, we, we know... Um, uh, we know a few good uh, flint nappers actually, and well, Bruce uh, Bradley himself is uh, uh, Bruce is, Bradley, is, world expert. Um, yeah. James uh, Dilly, uh, James Dilly, and uh, uh, Jeff, one of our admins actually. Um, hmm. uh, Jeff Watson, he's uh, he's a great napper, and it, uh, it's no more complicated to make something out of crystal, um, but uh, but it's true that it. Um, in some cases, it can be more brittle, so you have to be more careful. Yeah. But if you, but if you know what you're doing, um, and, you, and you've practiced with flint and the other sorts of things, it's not yeah. that much of a reach. Well, so oh, we, James tell, tells us. Well, and if you look on YouTube, look for Bruce Bradley, okay. uh, quartz blade or something like that. There's a okay. there's a video of him in front of the camera, just picking up, you know, going for it with a lump just of quartz it. and. Yeah. Uh, and creating a blade out of it. It's quite, quite, quite extraordinary. That means that he's probably had a misspent childhood of zapping around with his <laughs> prints, you know? It's like, we all did Bruce, that when we were kids in England, let's face it. But Yeah, no, Bruce is extraordinary uh, when you watch him work. Um, but, you know, Jeff, as I said, Jeff, our, um, um, our admin, he, uh, he makes um, some really pretty pieces out of glass you know he'll find a broken piece of glass or a broken piece of bottle and he'll turn it into a you know like a, a mini replica blade and we're making it sound a bit easy it, it really isn't it's, it's not really easy not. no it's i mean it's like skill. yeah just just doing the flints that we did when we were kids and it was like how the heck do they do this yeah. Mm. Okay, they didn't have the distractions that we had. They yeah. practiced over. No, no, and uh, also, it sounds like we're diminishing the skill of the person that created the crystal dagger that you're talking about. You know, right. the, those uh, and the other blades and the uh, the the arrowheads as well. Uh, he, you know, it's not everybody that uh, takes the time to develop those skills. And I, I guess yeah. the guy that created those would have had a very special place. Uh, yeah. In, uh, in and, you know, whatever. And the ivory handle on it. It's just yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it was a gorgeous, I mean, in, even in today's standards, it's a gorgeous piece, you know, it's mm, just mm, amazing. Mm. Hats off to that. But I think, uh, am I am I remembering wrong though? That was that added to the th the fact of the crystal daggers in that story. There was a whole story behind that. Yeah. About whether some people had been poisoned or not, and yeah, you know, yeah. It was, it was one of those instances where I wish somebody had write, written the novel, could write the yes. novel to you know to the, set, uh, <laughs> flesh on bones. If you forgive the pun. Well, the the thing is that the. If they were using um, what was the pigment? Um, it was a particular kind of ochre. Oh, that that's if, right. if they were using it as a body adornment, then over time they would have developed um, uh, mercury poisoning. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so you know the media kind of leapt on it as this was some kind of suicidal pact or something. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's far more likely that no, that you're picking up the toxins in their remains because a gigantic they were just poisoning themselves over a very long period of time. Yeah. <laughs> but you know we don't know, do we? We don't know. We just uh, no note to further. <laughs> following family members don't use this on your body <laughs> and that kind of segs you into um segments you into uh, the tattoo thing you know where you found the tattoo kits not you particularly yeah, not but the tattoo <laughs> kits that have been found you know <laughs> but that are thousands of years old yes yeah where were um, they uh well that's uh, that's in the states now yeah. um taxing our memories now oh yeah yeah, they do these things and they do one. <laughs> I'm just evil. <laughs> uh, in one ear, out the other. Um, I can't remember exactly where. And um, it's it's not, um, what? it was in Tennessee. Yes, it was in Tennessee. Mm. Hold on, I can actually pull it up. Yes, in Tennessee. Mm -mm. Old news. This time in relation to artifacts which were originally discovered in Tennessee back in 1985, but only sure. recently recognized as the world's oldest known set of tools for tattooing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, I'll say in our defense that, uh, that we try to record a number of, uh, of programs every week. Right. And our, our heads are so f full of jumbled information. Yeah. But it's know, fun to watch a scrabble. You know, I know I wrote about it and I know we said it and what have you, but no, I can't remember. So, yes, Tennessee. It's, yeah. and I, I have to say, one thing that I still find uh, strange about the, uh, the analysis of, uh, of this toolkit is that they were. Um, uh, they were not 100% sure on the dating. They were dating it from the, uh, the little um, oyster shells or clam shells that uh, were used to mix the pigment. And, and I would have thought that it would have been much more sensible to date the turkey bones because yeah. that you, I would have thought it would have been easier. Uh, so they must have had a reason and uh, and the honest truth is that we've just been so busy that I haven't been back to the uh, the yeah. actual archaeologists who did the work to ask them why they chose to uh, to test the shells rather than the bones. So it'll be interesting to find that out. I'll get around to it at some point. Yeah, we seem to do a lot of uh, the oldest ever found things. Don't we, we? I'll tell do you what, it. we've got a, we've got a doozy coming up. <laughs> 
the next one coming out. out. Yeah, the oldest (laughs) plot spoiler, the oldest boomerang. Oh, really? Yes. Where do you think think the oldest boomerang, the world's oldest boomerang, where do you think it is? It's not in Stratford-upon-Avon. It's not Um, in Stratford-upon-Avon. I would imagine um, probably Japan. That's not a bad shout. It's in Poland. Um, Well, it's a bit further away, but Poland. Japan would make more sense. The the idea is there. I mean, the the things what a lot of people don't know is that uh, boomerangs were used on all continents of the earth. Obviously, not Antarctica, but (laughs) uh, but there's even there's a nine thousand year old boomerang from Florida. Huh. Um, You know, uh, the the oldest boomerangs in Australia actual boomerangs, you know, that they've dug up uh, are 10,000 years old. Uh, They know that boomerangs were used in Australia 20,000 years ago because there's rock art where they were painted. Hmm. Um, So they go back 20,000 years, but this one in Poland is 23,000 years old. Wow. That's an old boomerang. That's an old boomerang, all right. Wow. I, would, I mean, stupid question, but what were they using it for? It was, uh, well, all boomerangs are hunting sticks. Uh, you know, the, right. the, there's two distinct types of boomerang. There's the ones that uh, are just basic throwing sticks. And then there's the the traditional one that everybody knows about is the returning boomerang. Right. Um, but most boomerangs weren't designed to come back. They were designed to fly. And kill whatever yeah. So that you could take out an animal or probably another person. Well, uh, I have it that they're most effective if you if you're hunting uh, fat wildfowl. If you've got makes uh, you know, flocks of birds, uh, you're more likely to hit something if you throw a boomerang into a mm. rising flock of uh, yeah. wildfowl. I could probably hit something with a yeah, yeah, yeah. Stone, uh, you know, <laughs> than, than trying to uh, maim a single animal with a single blow with a boomerang. Yeah. That's, a t- that's a tall order, I thought. Yeah. But, uh, but except that some of the um, uh, some of the non-returning styles of boomerang, you know, they're you know they're weighty things. You know, um, mm. in fact, I mean, even Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh Lord, I think there was something like twenty boomerangs buried with him. Really? Yeah. I never really saw it like that. I never yeah. read it like that either. But you know, that doesn't mean it wasn't written about. That's yeah. wild. So yeah. <laughs> we're full of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, some say that. <laughs> I'm not going to have Charlie Drake singing in my head, my boomerang won't come back for the uh, rest of the day. So thank you for that. <laughs> so, so if you could go anywhere tomorrow and you're all packed and paid for, where would it be to go and what would it be to, to look at? Wow! Just you mean we can go anywhere in the world to look at the archaeology? Yeah, fully paid, fully all safe, everything good. Oh, that's actually not an easy one to answer. Oh, Do you know, yeah. I mean, here's the thing, and again, I don't want to sort of jump the gun a little bit, but uh, <laughs> something I'm really looking forward to, which I think we're we're planning to do with uh, Standing with Stones too. 
is visit where the uh, jadeite uh, axe, the cutouts for the jadeite axes, came from in the Italian Alps. Yeah, that would be sort of like a. It's not so much archaeological. That's just that's just a, a pilgrimage to source, isn't it? Obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's a that's true. That's a very evocative thing, you know. That we've got um, these stunningly beautiful greenstone axes that have been found uh, all over the place. Not least of all in Scotland. There's a number of them in Scotland. And, and it's known, you know, from the petrology, you can tell exactly where it came from, which uh, quarry it came from in the Italian Alps. And uh, so, yeah, we are going to go and visit that, aren't we? I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good shout, but I, I, I want to go to Siberia. There's, there a lot, there's a lot of places in Siberia that... Um, and I'll tell you what, where would we be without the Siberian times? <laughs> well, apparently on this subject. You know, we, we love the Siberian times. It's, um, it's an online newspaper. I, I don't know if they do a paper version, but it's an online newspaper. And uh, more than any other newspaper we know worldwide, if there's archaeology uh, in, you know, that, you know, anything good that's been found, they put it in the paper. Mm. Um, That's amazing. And, uh, we've had some fantastic, uh, you know, pointers that we, you know, we've seen something in the Siberian times and then being able to, uh, you know, track back to the original uh, researchers that, mm. uh, you know, particularly things like, you know, the Odinov, what a name, the Odinov culture uh, from, uh, from Siberia, that there's some amazing excavations, you know, things that they've discovered uh, relating to um, some amazing burials. I have um, to say another uh, area that we're fascinated to uh, visit and uh, research in, and um, uh, that is um, you know, looking at where the, uh, particularly the German, I was going to use, try and use the German word, but I've forgotten, uh, the <laughs> roundels or rondels, yeah. The, you know the continental henges in other words yeah you know which uh, the, there's a concentration uh, of them you know they're all over but there's a concentration of them um in uh, germany and uh, what was just over the border i think uh, in east germany and and stretching up into poland as well what kind of uh, knocked our socks off recently was finding out that you know the the we're used to revering our own henges, Avebury, you know, Stanton yeah. Drew. I mean, there are more henges down the British Isles than you, you know, you'd, you'd think. But what really got us going was, oh, they're not just ours. There's loads <laughs> of them on the continent, you know. And uh, we, the, the, what's the place I'm thinking of particularly? That's what, uh, Pomelta, yes. I was uh, trying to think of something beginning with H. Thank you for the great save there. Close. But, I, but I think there's a, the, we can learn, you know, hopefully we can learn about what was going on with our own henches and the expectations of what Neolithic people, you know, have in their own landscape to, in order to live their lives 
from visiting some of those because um, there's been archaeology, particularly at Pamelta, which has not just looked at the Henge, but they have the associated communities and the buildings of the communities that the people that, that were using those, um, those sites. Uh, and hopefully there's something we can learn from that. But, mm. um, wow, they were all over the place. I mean, they were yeah, a thing. Literally. They were absolutely yeah. a thing. I, in fact, it's amazing how, uh, you know, and I think that's why an awful lot of people think that henges are, uh, are just a British yeah. uh, phenomenon. And that's just because they're called different things everywhere else. Yeah. So, you know, going through different parts of Europe, you know, you've got uh, Germany, you've got, uh, is, is it Roundels? I, I forget which way round it goes, but apart from the ridiculously long German name that I don't remember either off the top of my head, uh, but you've got, in different places, you've got roundels, you've got rondels, you've got, uh, in some places, they're just called enclosures. And when you have causewayed enclosures and palisaded enclosures, and, you know, there's so many different kinds that if somebody is just looking up henge, then they're not going to find half of these no. things. But no, there's loads of them, absolutely loads of them. Mm -hmm. That would be quite fascinating. Are you planning on going anywhere near that on the next, the next version of Standing With Stones? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, lots of them. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, I mean, Standing with Stones too. It's 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 very embryonic at the moment. We just we know how it's beginning, but right. we don't um, we don't really know where it's going yet. That's um, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, Standing with Stones number one uh, yeah. was a you know a journey. It was a geographical uh, journey. It was a travelogue. It was. Um, and we were concentrating on, you know, what we could see in the landscape on, on, on the stones and letting, you know, each one tell a different story about um, uh, the landscape, you know, and, and if we could relate to the people and what was going on. We're tr going to try and tell much more the story of the people who built them and the traditions, you know, how the traditions of uh, megalith building uh, developed and, and came about. So mm. yeah, we're we're tracing. We'll, we'll we'll be attempting to piece together the drivers that had people migrate, you know, from wherever from wherever they migrated from to wherever they migrated to, uh, and how we can trace the development of uh, of um, megalithic culture, basically. So you might, changed you, over might time. Actually, you might make it across to North America at some point, and then. Uh, I don't know. No, we're, to be honest, absolutely honest, uh, our, our sweet spot and our um, uh, sort of comfort zone is is Europe. North, uh, Northwest Europe and, and yeah. how things uh, came over I, I, from the east and ended up, uh, you know, you know. The yeah, I, I think it's it's fair. I, do, I know what you mean, but it, it's not so much that it's our comfort zone. It's the fact that that culturally you can see that northern europe uh megalithic culture is very much uh it's an identifiable thing yeah. in northern europe and through uh, throughout britain uh that when you get into uh the archaeology of the americas that whilst there are some similarities culturally it's quite different it, you know that yeah. when the people did settle and start doing things they were sufficiently removed that they were broadly doing things in a different way. So certainly, you know, we have every intention of getting over to the States in due course. Uh, 
<laughs> but it won't be for standing with stones too. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many reasons to uh, to come over to the states. Uh, I, I now feel that I need to go up north and go to like Newfie and then come back down and do all of the northern states and have a with different eyes. You know, it's like. Um, keep notes and then send it to you and say, excuse you. Because, <laughs> 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 I mean, that would be fun. That would be a lot of fun. So, yeah. Standing With Stones too. when, what do you do and how, how can we help? Well, that's very kind. kind. Um, yeah, do you um, want to take that? <laughs> it's, it's more a question, you know, of how everybody can help. Um, we haven't got all our soldiers in a row as far as lining up, uh, um, you know, what the funding will be uh, this time around. Uh, put it this way, Standing With Stones 1 was kind of self-funded. And right. my, our recommendation is if you want to earn fame and fortune, do not, you know, go make a film about rocks in fields. Um, <laughs> Uh, however, this we're doing it the the other way around uh, this time. Uh, we uh, we won't really set out until we've got it fully funded. Um, so what we'll do, we'll spend the rest of the, this year, you know, developing uh, what we're going to do. So uh, before the back end of the year, we'll be able to uh, present an outline of what people can expect Standing with Stones to to be. At which point. We will launch a, a Kickstarter campaign right. um, and invite people to uh, take part in that. In the meantime, uh, leading up to that, of course, we have our ongoing Patreon campaign. Um, and we have a great community in our, uh, on our Patreon uh, page, very vibrant and, and engaged and uh, uh, make sure that we <laughs> they, they do make sure we keep on the straight and narrow, don't they? <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> the great thing is they're helping us, you know, not only our day-to-day -day and uh, and helping us do what we do day-to-day, -day, you know, produce the prehistory flashes and the prehistory show and the other podcasty uh, stuff as well, but they're also, by default, helping us develop Standing with Stones too along the way, you know, that's so that's fabulous. a continuing ongoing thing. Um, but That's once we've fun. once we've got the focus of, of Standing with Stones right and its development right, then we'll be able to present the budget, at which mm. point we'll be able to say we need to raise this amount of money to, in order to be able to do yeah. uh, uh, this, mm. but we're not at that stage yet. So if you want to help now, uh, go to Patreon. Yeah. Go to the Patreon. Yeah. Well, page. I shall. And, and it seems that it's like hopefully starting next year really i mean that's not sort of out of the question is it no no not at all not at I all mean, no i mean it's, it's a tall order but it's not a, it's, it's yeah i mean it's it's one of those you know we are working on it already but we're working on it in a very developmental uh way you know it's it, at the moment it's about uh pulling the ideas together trying to pull the the narrative together so that we know uh you know what is Standing With Stones to trying to do in terms of being an educational and informative um, historical piece? You know, it's um, it's important to us that uh, that, you know, that what we produce isn't. <laughs> it's not just hot air and moving pictures. You know, it, it does. I don't think I'm not sure that you're capable of doing that either. <laughs> of you. Know, well, maybe you are. A huge, huge difference this time around is that, uh, you know, during the last few years, uh, uh, we've learnt so, so much. Mm. But not only that, the huge benefit um, 
uh, we've had from in engaging with folk in uh, academic archaeology fields is the expertise we can rely on now to ask mm. the questions, uh, you know. Uh, about That's really was, helpful. Yeah, uh, absolutely priceless. We yeah. are so fortunate that uh, that, uh, that we're, <laughs> we're actually respected by a, a lot of, uh, you know, our, our heroes in the archaeological yeah, yeah. world, that they like what we do. And, and so there's a number of them that, uh, you know, that we're in constant contact with in relation to, you know, sometimes, for example, you know, uh, we'll come up with ideas on whatever it might be. And sometimes it seems so straightforward to us that you think, I must be missing something. You know, surely I'm missing something. So we send emails out to archaeologists that we know asking exactly that. What am I missing here? And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is that most of the time you're not. It's just there is this, um, uh, there's a kind of received... Uh, knowledge on stuff and uh it you you have quite rightly i think people uh people should be kinder to anyone in the sciences where you say what you know and uh, and so that's why you won't hear scientists saying something completely uh you know that yeah. I don't know. I can't think of a suitably silly example, but but the thing is that you say what you know because as soon as you take science out of that arena, we know this. As soon as you take it out of that, it just stops being science, and then anybody can say absolutely anything, and nothing yeah. nothing means anything anymore. Yeah, that's very true. Um, that's very true. You know, so uh, we're lucky to be slightly on the outside, so we can be. Um, uh, we can say things that are not generally accepted if they seem to be utterly logical and plausible to us. You know, it's not that we expect everybody to agree with us, but sometimes yeah. we'll suggest something that might We're go against the grain. Not quite sure how much the rubber will meet the tarmac of some of, uh, as far as some of our more controversial ideas, shall we say, whether that uh, <laughs> within Stone with Stones 2 or not, or whether that's a, you know, uh, some of our thoughts are, are a separate issue um, mm. and might even be, be a, 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 a distraction within the context of... Uh, Making standing with stones too. Yeah. Don't know yet. Haven't come to a conclusion on that. It's it's a hard one. I think do you know we, we quote Bruce a lot. Um, Bruce Bradley. Um, <laughs> uh, you know he's very much uh, one of our heroes. Uh, and the thing is, when we were interviewing him some time ago, and uh, and, and we were talking about conventional archaeology really and he, he said that one of the crazy things about oh, archaeology and he is a conventional archaeologist he is a conventional <laughs> archaeologist you know, and, and, and one of the best you know yeah. uh, but bruce said to us that he said it's amazing how many experts can write papers on academic papers on hunting when they've never so much as been out and shot a rabbit yeah and that's been my problem with a lot of them uh, but it, it's such an important point that you know that you can have all these theoretical ideas, but it's only really the experiential experience or the experimental archaeologists who uh, who actually work with stuff out in the field and, and come up with well that didn't work, 
Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, that's just silly. You can do it better if you do it that way. Yeah. You know, it's all very well having all this stuff going on in your head, but um, sometimes you need to make it real world to find Seriously. out if it works or not. Seriously. Yeah. Well, it's fantastic. Leo? It's like, where did Leo go? <laughs> Sorry, I'm here ahead of my mic muted. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, do you have you got anything to put in with these young men? Oh, <laughs> nice. sorry. Nice. You I've, been, I've been sitting quiet this whole time, and I'm the nerd who loves this stuff. So where, where, where should I start, right? So, um, can you tell us any? You, you kind of gave us the tidbit of what you're doing with this next documentary that you're putting together. Is there anything else juicy that you can give the people uh, that you know you're going to do that? Maybe we can catch you guys with a little bit of an exclusive here that you can share with the fans and your fans and the people out there. Um, and if not, don't feel pressured if you don't want to release it. I'm not feeling pressured. I'm just no, thinking this might be an opportunity it, it for good an interesting point. <laughs> it is. It, it raises an interesting point, though, Leo, because you know we are in contact, as we just said, you know, and become friends with you know some very prominent archaeologists. Right. Now, the fact is, archaeologists don't agree with them amongst themselves, you know, about what is what, you know, and about what happened when and, and the chronologies and, and all that and what route was taken by this. So we've got interesting choices to make, you know, about which narrative we, we choose. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, we don't want to get political about it or anything like that. Tread on anybody's toes. But we've just, just got a, quite a sort of... Uh, a, a thread the eye of the needle just a little bit. I'm probably exaggerating a bit, a bit much, but we haven't. We've got to have some very deep conversations in order to establish which narrative we're we're, we're going to choose. Mm. So there's no no it, great it, reveals there. Yeah, no, it, it's true. It is very much one of those situations where. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's only a fool who is constantly sure of himself. You know, and uh, and so we we question our thinking and our rationale all the time. And uh, you know, and the thing is that we're researching all the time. And sometimes we think we can see a, a straight line of joining the dots. Yeah. And we're left in a position of thinking, well, they look pretty straightforward to join those dots. What are we missing? As I said before. And uh, and very often it's we're not actually missing anything, but people can be so specialised in their own areas that because working archaeologists and I say this with with huge uh, hats off and admiration anyway that because they're so constrained within you know they're budgeted to do this and this and this and this and this that they're actually focused in very specific areas and very often don't have the opportunity to look, uh, you know, globally mm. and, uh, you know, and see where connections are being made. Mm. Uh, something that you do see more often these days is international teams of archaeologists working on given projects, which is brilliant because it means that that, you know, that wider aspect of joining dots is happening more freely these days. Mm. Um, and it has to be said that, you know, social media and global communication has had an awful lot to do with that. Absolutely. Um, but uh, the, the thing that we are most, I suppose, um, 
excited about is showing the extent of global communications between peoples in prehistory. Yeah. Um, you know, those things that, you know, we talked about before, you know, when you mentioned the banana yeah. Yeah. on the teeth, yeah. um, you know, that um, uh, there are all sorts of aspects of, uh, you know, you can look at, uh, you know, there's a mosaic in Pompeii, for example, of a pineapple. Well, pineapples come from the Americas, right. uh, you know, and so um, the, the the conventional archaeological view on that is that it's a badly drawn pineapple. It's actually representative of a pine cone. And you look at it and you go, nah, it's pineapple. It's a pineapple. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's those sorts of things that, you know, there's all yeah. sorts of ways that you can see that, there was trading going on between there and there. Yeah. It doesn't matter what anybody says. You know, you you can't say that that didn't happen because clearly it did. And so it's you know it's down to us to try to join some of those dots together. To give a and, a, a, a half yeah. answer to your question, uh, Leo, is one thing that I think we will be trying to uh, interrogate and get the truth of is that it is fairly certain that the megalithic culture in northwestern europe kicked off in the morbihan bay roundabout in Brittany, in you know uh, that end of france and the reason it did so is because they were trading those people were trading up and down the atlantic seaboard and into the mediterranean with um, stone and materials, with, uh, what is it? Oh, not jadeite as yes, but there's other stones as well that they were <clears throat> trading up and down. Which is why you get such a, uh, you know, Portugal all up and down that that seaboard in, in Spain, round there, so many megalithic monuments that you know correlate to so many other places. Right. But the thing is, the raw materials were going up the uh, Atlantic seaboard, being brought into Brittany, and they'd cornered the market in converting this stuff into precious objects. Uh, so yeah. your beads, your blades, your, your uh, um, uh, adornments that were being traded were being traded from Britain. And I'm, I'm painting a very, very broad picture that right. I wouldn't take to the bank. But <laughs> this we hope you know is, is going to be sort of a kind of a backbone to the just the beginnings of you know what was happening with with the mm. megalithic culture and, and then the spread up into we we probably Ireland could say that as you've uh, as you've said that one of the things that we are contemplating and it does depend on budget but uh there's a there is a guy uh in Scotland, who makes authentic replica prehistoric boats? Um, you know, we oh, know how God. they made them, uh, and so he makes them. And we're thinking, well, that would be a bit kick ass, wouldn't it? If we can actually do some of that journey up the western seaboard in a boat and not die. Then that would be helpful. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> and so, what does um, Mrs. Soskin and Mrs. Bot say to that? <laughs> um, well, we haven't told them about that bit yet. Oh um, right, right. Well, you know where the insurance papers are, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Generally speaking, our wives are very supportive and long-suffering. Um, <laughs> but, 
Um, yeah, so we're very lucky there. Um, uh, it's quite funny that every time I say to my wife that I want to go to, and one of the other things that I really wanted to do, this is ridiculous, um, I, because there, there are megaliths uh, going right up into the Arctic Circle. Right. And I really wanted to uh, go up camping out, because some of them are not near hotels or anything else, <laughs> camp out and, uh, and uh, in the snow, which is fine. I'm, Am I you know, I, I do the outdoor stuff. And get some of these standing stones in the snow under the northern lights. How stunningly beautiful would that be? Well, oh, yeah, I told my wife I wanted to do this, and uh, she begged me not to, because she always thinks I'm going to die. And uh, uh, and she said, "Well, at least take a friend with you." And uh, and I, I've got a mate. Sadly, he died a few years ago. But uh, a good he wasn't friend. in Scandinavia in a tent, was he? <laughs> no, 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 no. He died in England, but he had a house in Sweden. And so Julie thought, well, Dave, he's a, he was a builder, so he was, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was a tough bloke. And, uh, uh, and Julie said, go with Dave, because she'd feel quite safe. You know, she wouldn't worry about me at all if I was with Dave. So I rang Dave, and I said, listen, mate, my wife thinks I'm going to die. Do you fancy coming and doing this with me? And he said, that sounds great. Yeah, let's do that then. And I said, all right, I'll send you the details. So I sent him an email with the map of where I was going to go and all the rest of it. And the following day, he rang me up and he said, no, I'm sorry, Rupert, I don't think I'm up for that. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I made the point to my wife that, uh, that you know, that I, if I'm on my own, then I'm, you know, I'm, it's just me I've got to look after and you want to send me off with, now I've got someone else that I need to look after. I don't need the pressure. Um, but uh, yeah, that didn't happen anyway. So we might still do that. Seriously, he's nodding. Is that the word well, might? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh. it would be fascinating to see that. I mean, the Northern Lights isn't on my list of to dos, but camping mm. outside and no, not so much. It's uh, yeah, we can we, we can do that. Uh, I think Rupert's a bit more hardy than I am, um, <laughs> but I, I, I think uh, we'll probably survive. In the snow with the northern lights, I don't care about the cold. I, right. you know, I've, I've camped most of my life, and you just dress for it, you wear layers. Yeah, yeah. that's right. the thing. It's easy yeah. to say in the middle of California that you don't care about the cold until you're feeling well, got frostbite and well, the wind is... It was Billy Connolly that, that said, there's no such thing as bad weather, only the wrong clothes. Right. He, he was right, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's Maybe he would go with you, you know? I mean, the big kid would go anywhere for a laugh like that, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, maybe you might be right. I mean, you know, where we think about this stuff, and I am, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, long in the tooth. Uh, so I'm not 20 anymore. I'm not 15 anymore. And, you know, you, I say that, oh, yeah, it'd be great. And then you go there and I'm going, what am I thinking? I'm freezing. <laughs> How did I get myself into this? <laughs> you never know, right? Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's true. You could have the right clothes. <laughs> right? So here's another question I have for you without getting political because we don't want to go down that road. But um, have you run into problems because of different countries they all have different laws when it comes to uh, artifacts 
uh, and even excavation of artifacts. Have you run into any stonewalling where you went, you wanted to go somewhere? And you don't have to say the country because we don't need to get political, but have you ever, you know, we want to go here and look at something and the country says, well, no, no, we don't want you doing that. Are well, you going to film? No. Have you ever had that problem? No, we haven't. Because we haven't been international yet. Um, we'll, You've been to Ireland. I uh, Scotland. Um, we, well, the thing is that um, we haven't tried to do anything controversial from that point of view. Mm. I know that there have been situations, not for us, but there have been situations uh, where, I mean, for example, did you, do you know about the Caucasian mummies in China? Yes. Well, there was a situation with those that a team of uh, researchers uh, from Europe actually uh, made all their arrangements because, you know, the Caucasian mummies in China had been kept very much under wraps yeah. by China. Oh, literally. Uh, yes, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And, uh, and so these guys had made all the arrangements uh, and, you know, got permission that they could go and, and, and actually have a look at the, uh, the mummies. And when they got there, all the heads had been removed. Wow. Wow. Uh, because obviously it was the heads that proved categorically that they were uh, Caucasian and not Chinese. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still a thing, you know, that, uh, that culturally China wants it maintained that, that they have developed in isolation. Uh, so, you know, you can see that those kinds of problems do arise. Yeah all over the place, but yeah. we personally, uh, you know, the, the closest I can come to that uh, f uh, for a problem that we had was when we wanted to film at Scarabray on Orkney, yeah. and we contacted, uh, it was Historic Scotland at the time, it's now Historic we were, we were flying under the radar a bit when we were making Standing With Stones. We yes. were, but you know, you, you, you can't do that sort of thing uh, you know, you, you can't do guerrilla filming in those sorts of conditions. So we, uh, we contacted Historic Scotland and said uh, that we wanted to film in Scarabray. And they said, well, you can, we'll give you permission to film in the reproduction house. There, there's a recreation uh, there. And, uh, and we said, well, we're not interested then. If we can't show people what's real, we're not interested in doing it. And, and they said, oh, all right then. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this was on the spot. I mean, we had just turned. We literally turned up. Yeah. We were brave boys, actually. Well, it's good though. It was brave or stupid? I'm not sure which, but uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That I mean, that you're probably going to have a few problems in Poland, but you know, whatever. Um, I I I know a number of people in Poland, and I'm hoping that I can. <laughs> I can call on a few friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And you never know what it's going to be like on, That's on true. the ground. You know, we, I mean, when we were in Ireland, for example, there are some places we filmed that, looking back, we think, <laughs> well, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I know. You were talking about Maeve's Cairn and, and around there, the, the uh, Caramel um, um, Neolithic Cemetery there. Uh, we turned up, you know, because they're, they're on, all under the auspice of the Irish uh, organisation that looks after, it's not right. the, the National whatever. Trust or whatever, uh, yeah. but they, uh, you know, on it like a, 
you know, they clamp down because they expect money. Yeah. You say, That's I'm so going, we're doing some filming. Ka-ching! Wow. <laughs> no, that's not the way things are done, you know. The, so yeah. That's really sad, isn't it? Because I mean, really. But, you know, we we thought we weren't going to get into the Caramel Megathick 70. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, I'm loath to do an accent, you know, but after <laughs> the gates had shut and all that sort of sort of thing, the, the um, concierge or whoever was, you know, had access to the keys, you know, said, oh, poor lads. Uh, you didn't see me and I didn't see you. Away you go, lads. And let us into the, you know. That's uh, fantastic. But then later on, I mean, it could have been, what was it, a couple of days later, we were at Newgrange. And yeah. you can't, you know. It was, it was, it was at Nowth, wasn't it? It was, it was at Nowth that we got into. It was at Nowth that we got in, and exactly the same thing happened. Yeah. Not the same thing. I didn't guy, see you, was, you didn't see me. And, uh, I, yeah. you know, bless them, because, uh, you know, you know they, they could tell that we were serious. We weren't going to mess anything up, and, you know. Um, and uh, so, <laughs> yeah, we did, uh, we got lucky in a we number of places. Lucky, yeah. we, we got lucky. <laughs> so you need to have two movies going side by side, really, don't you, when you're doing the cutting well, later on? Where would we be without the making of movies? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, chaps, it's um, it's been fantastic having you on here. We've been sort of yappering away for nearly one and three quarter hours now, which is Who would have thought? Well, is it? Oh, God, doesn't time fly? Well, no, it's just it's so kind of you to invite us. You know, thank yeah. you very wonderful, much. Wonderful, wonderful, and um, well, we'll stay in touch because anything that we can do to help with this, getting this going as quickly as possible. Thank, Bless you so thank you very much. Yeah, no, that would be great. That would be great. Um, thank you much, Lee. And so, <laughs> you take good care and, uh, you know, and, uh, and thanks for watching to all your viewers. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we'll let's see you again. That, let's hope that some other people will come and search you out now because right? you're fabulous. Well, I've been floating the links during the show, uh, you know, for you guys with all your information. So everybody has an idea. Those of you who are watching this, you see down here in the bottom, you see that. Blended. You know, Click on those links, or or you know, copy and paste, or type it in if you have to with your with your fingers. But they're, they're there for you guys. We'll give you some links. We'll give you some links we'll afterwards. Put them in the, yeah, we'll put them in the uh, chat as well, so that they have uh, that to click on. <coughs> Pardon me. But <coughs> instead, you're not talking, and now my voice is <coughs> got full of phlegm here. So, guys, um, I I loved. I wish we had more time to to continue because there's so many questions that I have to ask you guys. We'll have to have you guys back at some point and. And hey, then, no problem, no problem. When you guys get the documentary going for certain, but even before that, yeah. uh, and then when you're ready to, to release it, you know, think about us. Oh, that's definitely sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 So we can give the people a kickoff and you can tour around and go to other people to do the same thing and get to get more people interested in yeah. taking a look at this guy's going to take a look at their YouTube page. I put it up on the, on the screen for you there a second ago. Hold on, let me put it back on the screen. Uh, for you guys to see, go in and take a look at that. You can also go to their website. I have that queued up here someplace. Um, I can put that on the bottom on the ticker there. Go to their website and take a look at what's going on. Go to the YouTube channel, their Patreon channel, and, and help donate some money so these guys can can get this stuff done. And, you know, it's the, the mainstream academics don't want a lot of information out because, like you were saying, they're, 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 uh, earlier Ruben was saying that when they're so focused on, on their specialty and the money that they have budgeted to do this, 
some of the stuff gets overlooked and it's guys like these guys right here yeah. who go in and show you guys some of the stuff these people aren't looking at because it's not part of what they're getting paid to do. So some of these guys and, have no idea. And the merchandise. And, yeah, and merchandise. The merchandise. We, we dig deeper. <laughs> we dig we deeper. That's <laughs> <laughs> the truth of it though, right? And that's, uh, if you guys are interested in it, if you go to the YouTube uh, channel, they have a link to their merchandise there too, so you can get one of those T-shirts that Michael's wearing right now. Famous, like, Michael. I was, I, was looking, I was looking at that stuff earlier. I'm like, I, where's the link for that? Well, I guess if you go to the YouTube channel, it's there. Right. So, and we'll, we'll link some stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> YouTube channel, you can see that. But that's true. You guys dig deeper, in it, and we appreciate that. It takes some of us out here on the fringes, quote unquote, with the air fingers there, uh, to get stuff done because we are passionate enough for you guys. I say we like I'm one of you, but you guys are passionate enough to go out there and, and go, look, here's the real history. Here's what's going on out here, guys. Take a yeah. look around. And a lot of people aren't doing that. So I love that, guys. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you so much. So thank, thank you, you boys. Very, very kind it's indeed. Been fun. Thank you for having us on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here. I was I was sitting here the whole time. I was off camera, but man, I was going, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. <laughs> so we have to have you back. Yeah, that's why you were asking questions for you. <laughs> We'd be here until midnight, right? <laughs> cool. This well, nerd asking you questions, we could probably be here until midnight because I got to love a nerd. No problem. <laughs> got to love a nerd. All right. Well, thank you yeah. for watching, people. Thank you for being here. And um, we'll see you soon. Cheerio. You can stay. <laughs>